0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mescouta, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. There is one more distraction. It is coming from this general direction over here. All right. Uh, Even if I wasn't praying about that out loud, I was silently calling down a judgment of fire upon the heater over there. Here's the deal. Uh, it's distracting. And our Lord and our God is good. <laughs> so we're going to lean in and we're going to trust that the Lord is going to move and work and speak. And uh, if the, the, the noise from my left keeps going, we're just going to pretend like, you know, the, the, the book of the Acts of the Apostles says that they prayed and that the Lord shook the room. Well, we prayed, and maybe the Lord is just going to shake the heater a little bit, but nonetheless, we're going to count it as Him and good. Well, one of the things that I will tell you about me, um, and if you know me, you know this, is I love um, I love reading, and I especially love fictional novels, and typically you'll find me in fantasy novels. And so every year, pretty much, I will read through uh, the Chronicles of Narnia all the way through. I'll read through C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, and then typically I'll also read through either The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, and and then I'll find myself going, all right, what am I supposed to do now, right? And so several years ago, I had kind of exhausted all of those things. I had read them close enough together that I hadn't forgotten the good parts, and so I was on a a journey to find another series of books that I could read, and so I remember uh, doing what we all do now, uh, looking for knowledge, I went to the Google. And I said, uh, what's a series of books like The Chronicles of Narnia and uh, um, The Lord of the Rings? And it spit out to me a, a series of books by an author named Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, she is also a fantasy writer. Uh, the, the books start with the first one, The Wizard of Earthsea. Sea, Great book. Go and read it if you want. Um, But I I read all the way through it and and thoroughly enjoyed it. And so knew nothing about her like I did J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis. And so I spent some time just kind of looking up uh, her words, her life, and things like that. And as I was doing that, I came across an interview with her. And she said something in this interview that has stuck with me. She said this when she was talking about the books that she writes and what's the most laborious part of writing the books and what does she labor over the most what is she most enthralled with and she said this she said first sentences first sentences are doors to entire worlds first sentences are doors to entire worlds and she was describing that no matter how good a book is if the beginning isn't well crafted, well tied in, well placed, well thought out, that a critical portion of that story is already missing. Right? The beginnings, the first sentences of books, they hook us. Right? A good first couple sentences draws us in. They begin to kind of form the world around us. They set the stage for what we're about to hear. And ultimately, if they're good, we remember them. All right, so I'm going to be bold for a second. We'll do a little audience participation, and if you've been here before, you know that this typically goes terribly wrong at Mercy's Door. But trusting in the sovereignty of our Lord, we'll try it again. So I'm going to read you just a few first sentences of books, and you can just shout out to me if you know what book they come from, all right? This could go terribly wrong. Please don't say anything that we'll need to counsel about later or that you're not ready to confess to everyone else in this room that you've read, okay? So, here's the first one. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Let me finish. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Excellent, excellent, excellent. All right, here's the next one. This one is, this one's easy, all right? Let me read the whole thing. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. That's what I'm talking about. This is why I call for the Lord to rain down fire. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the end of worms and an oozy smell, not yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hold, and that means comfort. Yes, The Hobbit, by C.S. Lewis. Oh, I'm sorry, J.R.R. Tol- Tolkien. I may have given away some that's coming. Next, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice. Oh, you guys aren't so uh, cocky anymore, huh? Good. How about this one? There was once a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. Finally, all children except one grow up. Peter Pan. Pan. Good. Yeah, The the beginnings of books, they, they, they do something for us. They'll give you the entire, in some ways, ethos of the book. Just by reading the first few few lines, you begin to get a grasp of what you are in store for. And the best, most important, most world-changing first sentences, I would argue, you find here in the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John, the apostle, the gospel writer, begins his retelling of the good news of Jesus, not with the genealogy, like Matthew does. Not with a dedication to the singular person that it was primarily written for, like the gospel writer Luke does. And John doesn't just jump into the action like Mark does. Instead, John begins intentionally, slowly, but powerfully to help us see in just a few sentences the breadth The length, the height, and the depth, the magnitude, and the glory, the need for the story that we are about to enter into. And so, because this introduction, this prologue, these first few sentences are so important, we are going to spend the next two weeks just on these five verses looking at what John introduces for us because John in these five verses introduces both the context of the story and the one that the story is about he introduces to us the context the rhythm the importance of the story and the one that this story is about and so today we are looking at John setting the stage for the story. And we're going to look at three aspects that John begins to unfold for us. First, the origin of the story. The origin of the story. Next, the ownership of the story. The ownership. And finally, the objective of the story. Now, I want you guys to hear this. One, it took me a good 45 minutes to come up with the third O. All right, I came up with the first two, and then I had to get on synonym.com to find the third one. But here's why I tell you this. One, these points are guardrails. They're handrails, right? If if you're anything like my wife and I with five kids, it's easy in the midst of a 40-minute sermon to get off track to be distracted. And the points are meant to be guardrails, so you don't get too far. You can jump back in and know in the stream of the story where we're going. But ultimately, I don't want you to know my three points for this sermon at the end of this. Ultimately, I want you to hear from the God who has written these words. And so take notes, be diligent, Walk with us as we journey through this text, but do so with your arms and your mind, your heart, your hands open to the Lord, asking him, God, you intend intend for me to be changed during this time. So speak to me, change my heart, change my life, spirit move within me. And that place is a place that we can then walk out the gospel together. So, as I mentioned, the beginning of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse, let us look first at the origin of this story. John begins with what should be familiar words to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John uses words that certainly the Hebrew readers, the Israelite readers, would have immediately uh, recognized, and if you've been here, as we journey all the way from left to right through Scripture, you should recognize these words. When John begins in the beginning, he's referencing back to the very first words of Holy Scripture within the book of Genesis. But John is not just simply quoting the book of Genesis. He's actually expounding upon it. The book of Genesis says, in the beginning, God. And then we begin to read what God does in the beginning, which is create. But John expounds upon in the beginning, God, by telling us that in the beginning, The Word, which we will come to find, is John's reference to the person of Jesus. In the beginning, Jesus was. And Jesus was with God the Father. And Jesus was Himself God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with god john is telling us that this story that he is about to tell is not a new story it's not a separate story it isn't another chapter in an old story but instead he is telling us that the gospel is the story That the beginning of the good news of Jesus does not begin here in John. It does not begin in Matthew. It does not begin in the New Testament. It does not begin in the prophets that were speaking after the exile of Israel. It does not begin in the Psalms or the songs of David, nor with Moses, nor with Abraham, nor with Noah. But the gospel begins in the beginning. And of course, in the beginning, actually, is in the beginning before, before creation. Let me, let me draw out that truth for you for a second. What John is telling us is that Christ and His life, His death, and resurrection began before sin. Began before the fall. It was pre-planned by the Lord. The Apostle Paul brings similar conclusion in the beginning of his letter to the church in Ephesus when he writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him Before the foundation of the world. Let me read that again. Even as God chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption, again, before the foundation of the world, to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. In the beginning, God was. In the beginning, Christ was. In the beginning, the Gospel was planned. All of Scripture was always, all of the history of humanity was always leading towards this, the good news and the coming of Christ. God was always working all things together for good in our lives and in the world through Christ Jesus, all of the Old Testament, even if we or they couldn't see it, was always leading towards this story. This culmination. The coming of this God in human flesh, Christ Jesus. John's telling us, when you lean in and you read this story, remember, not for a moment, Was this not the intention of our God? This is not reactive. This is not new to the storyline. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was and is and was to come for us. John is also telling us, as he explains this origin using the words, "...in the beginning." He's alluding to something that is about to happen with Christ and that this story of Christ Jesus is a new creation. Right as we hear in the beginning, we should think of Genesis 1 and 2. We should think of the Lord speaking and as he speaks powerfully creating. And as he creates declaring that it is good. We should think of the perfection of God's creation, and then we should quickly think about the destruction and the fall of God's perfect creation with the coming of sin from Adam and Eve and the temptation of the serpent. We should think about all that went wrong, how it all ended not in celebration, but how it ended in tears. And then, as we think of this, and then John uses those same words again, in the beginning. John is alluding to the fact that a new creation story is about to be written. A new creation account. A new humanity is about to be formed, and this time, man will not be expelled from the presence of God, but through the work of Christ Jesus, man, will be with God for all eternity, welcomed back in, remade, not as marred image bearers, but remade as the perfect image bearers of the Lord. You'll see these themes all throughout Scripture. God is a creating God. And He will not let what He once declared as good stay broken. John is telling us that he is recreating. And finally, in this origin, he's also telling us that this moment is long awaited. Right? The the time before the first in the beginning and this in the beginning has been long. John is writing of the first beginning, but he's not writing in the first beginning. He is living, as he writes these words, long after the first creation, long after the fall. And as we read these Gospels, we tend to read them with our own lens, which is thousands of years after the coming of Christ. But for the men and women that we are going to encounter that meet the coming of Christ in these pages, they have spent generation after generation after generation after generation longing for, waiting for, hoping for the fulfillment of the promise of God that there would finally come one who would undo the curse of sin and death. John says in the beginning, and part of the reason he says that is to be able to say to us, it has been a long time coming. This story started a long time ago. But since that long time, there have been millions of deaths, millions of tears, millions of sin, an incalculable separation between God and man, and one promise from the Lord restated so many different ways that there was finally coming a day when He would reconcile all things, and that day starts now, John says. The origin of this story is before the foundation of the world. But John doesn't just tell us the origin of the story, the when the story begins. He also tells us the who the story belongs to. Verse 3 says this, all things were created, I'm sorry, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Let's unpack that logic for a second because in John's first five verses, a poet that I think John is, he he states things forwards and backwards. All things were made through him. He was the agent by which all things were made. And therefore, since He created all things, there is nothing, or he says, without Him, was not anything made that was made. To say it succinctly, Jesus made everything. Paul restates this in the book of Colossians, even expands upon it. He says, for by Him, Jesus, all things were created, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, all things were created for him. He, Jesus, is before all things, above all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, there's been a a new rhythm uh, that has started to take place within the film industry, and, and that rhythm is that the lead character is oftentimes portrayed by the person who is also directing the film. That the person that directs the film plays the lead character. They get to both be in the story and they get to direct the story. That works in pictures. It doesn't tend to work in written stories. Right? A person has to either be the author writing about other people Or they are the character and their lives are formed by an author. Maybe to put it another way, one is either powerful as the author and yet removed from the story, not themselves a part of the story, or they are the character, which means they are intimately involved in the story, but they are at the mercy of another But what John is telling us is that this is not so with Jesus. Christ is not simply the man that the story is about, but because he is the one that all things through were made and without him was not anything made that was made. He is both the main character of this story as well as the author All things, every man, woman, and child that we will see in the Gospel of John made by Jesus. All events and circumstances, every storm that occurs, made by Jesus. Every ounce of food that is eaten, made by Jesus. The homes that they dwell in, made by Jesus. The specks of dirt on the ground that they walk over, Made by Jesus. Now let me tell you why that's important. We spoke at length, if you were here, when we walked through the book of Ruth, or as we called it, the gospel, the good news of Ruth. We talked about the fact that our God is the author of all of our stories, and that that's really good news. He gives us peace when we are out of control. It gives us great hope because he is all-powerful when we are not. And it gives us joy because he is good even when we are not. But as we read the Gospel of John, we see the author enter into the story. And it shows us a couple of things as we cast our eyes on him it shows us one how he wants and desires to interact with his creation let me say that again because jesus is the author and the main character it tells us definitively how he desires wants to interact with creation why because he is choosing how the story goes he is not at the whim of another author which means when he speaks, when he acts, when he, when he interacts, he is doing so as both the main character and the author. Think for a moment about this and realize that Jesus, as Lord, is not constrained to our desires or our plans or even our ways. And for some astonishing reason, he chose to come for us. He didn't have to, but He chose to. And this, this Gospel is how He has chosen, how He's chose to save us. It's how He's chose to love us. There's no begrudging Jesus at all. There's no reluctant Savior at all. Think about that for a second. When you watch Jesus heal, when you watch Jesus weep, when you watch Jesus draw near to those that other humans, even his disciples, have no desire to draw near to. He's not doing it because he has to. He is the author of the story. He could have written it another way. He could have been born in a palace. He could have been born in Rome. He could have been born with wealth and power and military might, but he didn't. He chose to write the story this way. And it also means that as we see him interact with some of his creation in these pages in the Gospel of John, it also is showing us how he feels and interacts with all of his creation. Right, so when he heals a leper and he decides to tenderly touch one that has not been touched by another human being for God knows how long. That that's the same Jesus that interacts with us when we are unclean. When we feel isolated and alone. When he calls the disciples who are unworthy, when he speaks lovingly with the adulterous woman at the well, when he feeds the harassed 5,000, we're seeing not just how the Lord God interacted then, but who he is, which means how he interacts with all of us. This story began before the foundation of the world. And Christ is its central character, but it is also He that is writing the story. It's the origin of the story, and now we see the ownership of the story. Finally, let us look at the objective of the story. You know, I'll confess to you that of all four of the Gospels, John is the most difficult for me to get my arms around. I tend to resonate with the Pauls of the world, right? If you've ever been into our home and you see any piece of furniture or picture that is not symmetrical and set at right angles, it's done by my wife. Like I I can't get my arms around it. I can't get my head around it. Like anything outside of the box physically hurts my brain. And so if you set up a living room plan, there's gonna be a rectangular rug and there's going to be a piece of furniture on all four sides facing 90 degrees into the middle. And the moment she like just turns one of them, my brain explodes. And so I go, okay, you do that because I'm just going to want to turn it back to center, right? Paul is a linear thinker. He writes from left to right. He logically builds his case. And John is not. John is a poet. John doesn't even write chronologically sometimes. He jumps back and forth, and he's got these big, grand images, and I'm just like, John, can you put the chair in the middle of the rug? And he doesn't. That's not how he writes. John tends to develop what what we might call great or grand themes. right? You'll see in the Gospel of John, Words like the Word become flesh. You'll see themes about light and love. But you don't just see grand themes, you also see in the Gospel of John grand conflict. You see light contrasted with darkness. You see life contrasted with love or with uh, death, you see love contrasted with evil. John ends these first five verses telling us what this story is going to be about. It says of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. the light shines where? In the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. One of those Christmas passages that we kind of will go back to is found in the book of Isaiah where we're told that a people dwell in the midst of great darkness, but on them a light has come, a light has shone. And John is telling us that this conflict between life and death, light and darkness, Jesus has come for that conflict. This is absolutely a love story, but John also tells us that it is absolutely a story of redemption, that it is a story of conflict, that it is a battle that must be waged and ultimately a battle that Jesus will win. Now, this this metaphor of light, John tells us explicitly one thing that it means, and he implies another. First, John tells us that light is life. So we are about halfway through our kids through elementary school. We've got one middle schooler, we've got another that's about to enter junior high, and then we've got three more that are going to be working their way through elementary school. One of the fun things with having five kids is you get to see a lot of the same work, right? Like one, much has changed since I went through elementary school. Common core math is still, I'm pretty sure, written in Mandarin because I don't understand it. Okay, but there are a few things that I did that they still do. And one of those is a science experiment that I love. They come home with two styrofoam cups, okay? And there is a single seed planted in each of the styrofoam cups. And you're supposed to set one cup on the windowsill in direct sunlight. And where do you put the other cup? In a cupboard somewhere. That's right. Turns out math may have changed, but science hasn't. Okay? Now, I, I'm, you know, I know we've got some molecular biologists here. Uh, but even if you're not, Let me just allow you to take a stab at which of those plants tend to grow better. Yes, the one. You guys aren't so jumpy on that. (laughs) Okay, when I'm doing, uh, you know, the tale of two cities, you know all the answers, but we get into science and you guys don't know it as well. Yes, the one on the windowsill tends to grow. You know what the one in the cupboard does? It dies. Light is life. And we are told that Christ comes as light that is the life of all mankind. But His light coming is contrasted to the darkness of where we exist without Him. This means that everything Christ does and says is leading us towards life. It's leading us out of death. His prayers are redemptive prayers. They're prayers of life. Both the prayers that he teaches us and the prayers that he prays to the Father. When he rests in the story, we are watching Jesus redeem humanity. The conversations that he has, the sermons that he gives, the arguments that he enters into, the healings that he performs when he weeps, and certainly when he dies, all of these things are done under the banner of bringing life to death. Might be the spirit of Jesus calling us. We must ask and look at how these things are redeeming what is broken, what's sick and twisted in the world. Everything that Jesus does, hear me, everything, not just the Passion account at the end, is Him redeeming a broken world. And so when you see Him get up early and you see Him go to be with the Father, He's redeeming things that are broken. He's redeeming where we believe that we can do things and live out even an entire day on our own. When He weeps with those that are weeping, He's redeeming that we have isolated ourselves from other people and that we have somehow seen our own needs and desires as greater and bigger than other people. When He heals even those that are undeserving, He's proclaiming for us a redemption that is needed for all of humanity. And this also, this life in the midst of death also means that when we see Christ as anything less than a Redeemer, over every aspect of our life, we are failing to see Him correctly. Or I'll say it another way, Christ is not just an example for you and I. This isn't a book of how you should live first and foremost. It's a book of how you were redeemed first and foremost. This is why confession and repentance and dependence and hope, what Brett leads us into every single Sunday, is so important. Because if your normal everyday experience with Jesus is not primarily about your redemption, the healing of your heart and the healing of every area of your life, then you are not relating to him as he would primarily have you relate to him. If you go and look to him first as a magic genie that blesses your plans, you're seeing him wrong. If you go to him first and foremost as a rule giver, you're seeing him wrong. If you go to him as a good example of how to love other people, you're seeing him wrong. Not that those things aren't true of him, but he is first and foremost, John says, a light and life that comes into death and darkness. Jesus is a light that brings life, and he's also a light that brings truth. One of the most common miracles that Jesus performs in John and the other gospels is healing people that are blind. And he does it several times and he does it in different ways depending on the person. But one common thing occurs. The first person, the first thing that they see when their eyes are opened is the face of Jesus. Jesus has come to give us spiritual eyes. Eyes that are meant to see him. The book of Hebrews says that He is the image of the invisible God. That when we see the face of Jesus, the person of Jesus, we are seeing the very God that said in the Old Testament, no man can see me face to face and live. And because of that, God condescended into human flesh that we might see Him face to face. Think about that for a second. Think of what that means. Think of when you see Jesus with the deplorables. The woman caught in the midst of adultery. The prostitute. The tax collector who is actively belittling, demeaning, and serving up violence upon His people Just to earn a buck. Think of Jesus in the midst of those situations and know that what you are seeing is truth of God. The reason there can be no Old Testament angry God and New Testament loving God is because Jesus was in the beginning with God and was God. And so what you will see in these pages over the coming months is you will see God walking intimately and tenderly, graciously and mercifully. This is the story we are entering into. A story as old as any story before the foundation of the world. A story centered on Jesus and written by him, and a story that was written for the purpose of redemption, bringing eternal light into the darkness. So let me end here. Let me finish with trying to convey to you just for a moment the importance of this story that we're walking through. The Apostle Paul writes a letter in his last days in prison, and we know that letter is 2 Timothy. We don't know if it was written days before his death, a month, uh, a few weeks before his death, but we know from church history and from Paul's own words that it is one of the last letters, pieces of communication he writes. And he ends that letter, the last words of a dying man, if you will, he ends it like this. To Timothy, he says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and he's gone on to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus is in Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Go and get Mark, and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus, and when you come, Timothy, bring the coke cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas, and also the books, and above all, the parchments. The parchments would have been Scripture. Now, we don't know exactly which parchments parchments it would have been. It may have been Old Testament prophecy. It may have been the Psalms. It may have been a number of different things. It was likely not his letter, but it absolutely could have been one of the four Gospels. But knowing what we've just said about this book, it doesn't actually remember or, or matter what parchments it was, what Scripture it was. We know that if it was Scripture, it was the story of Jesus And Paul, at the end of a long and fruitful life following the Lord. Paul, after spending his days building up the church and suffering difficulties that we can only begin to fathom. Paul, what he wanted most in his dying days, the one thing he could not do without, the thing that Timothy must bring to him, was the story of Jesus the story of God coming for humanity but it wasn't just the story of Jesus it was Paul's story because it was the story of how Jesus redeemed Paul it was the story of how Jesus loved Paul his name's not in the gospels you won't find it it's not what i mean but what i mean is that when Jesus came and He loved. He loved humanity. He loved Paul and He loved us. When Jesus came and sacrificed, He sacrificed for humanity. He sacrificed for Paul and He sacrificed for us. And when He rose victorious over sin and death, He did so for humanity. He did so for Paul and He did so for us. And so church, over the next several months, as we enter into the Gospel of John, I want you to hear this. Casting our eyes on Jesus day after day after day. Seeing Him move and work. Seeing Him teach and heal. Seeing Him come from heaven to earth. We experience our salvation story and our redemption story. I pray that this book, this gospel, will change our lives and our hearts and will give us a renewed hope that can never be taken for us. So that even on our last days, what we would say is, just remind me of Jesus. All I need is him. Let's pray.